So the book of James has been this incredible journey for us this summer. And James is all about this idea of authentic living, that, that you're living this way, that God has called you uh, to this purpose, and that your life should look differently than the world. That he's called you out of darkness, brought you into this marvelous light, therefore you should look differently than the world. And James is all about how you should look and live and walk as followers of Christ. And we come to the end today, and I want you to see how James, if you just read James, or if you're in small groups, and most of you have done small groups, James is one of those small group books. Uh, you get to the end, and you're like, how does this fit in? It seems such a strange way to end this book. But I want you to see how it bookends. It really does fit. So you remember when James started? He started with trials. You remember that? He said, you're going to face some suffering, but this suffering is going to be from outside you. This is not things that you've done. This is just, there's just some trials going on in your life. These are external things that, are, that, that you're going to be facing. And he talked about uh, the, those that, if any transition to prayer, if, if you need help, if you need guidance, if, just ask God for wisdom, and God will give you that wisdom. He's not going to hold it back from you. And then he begins to talk about this double-minded man, that the double-minded man will not receive that promise because he is unstable in all his ways. That double-minded man is a major theme throughout this book. And I think that's where how James ends. He ends with suffering. This is not suffering from outside. I think this suffering is unique. I think this is suffering because of how you've been living. And it's, the, it's, it's, it's this double-minded man and it's this idea of, of, uh, of prayer. And so this morning we're going to end James. And I think this is where uh, the, the point that James is trying to make here is that the grace of God towards the double-minded man. And so if you brought a Bible, turn with me to James chapter 5. And I'm going to back up one verse into last week's message. If you weren't here last week, let me just take a moment and catch you up. Last week was... Um, James telling us to be patient. There is, there is this coming of the Lord. He's going to come and in return. He's going to restore everything that's broken. Everyone that's ever lived, the living and the dead, will all have to give an account for how they've lived before this one judge. And um, he ends um, that section, and probably if your Bible is like mine, you have these little headings. And so mine um, has this break between um, it's 7 and 12 is that section. That's what we did last week. And then you have like this heading, at least mine does. It says the prayer of faith between verse 12 and 13. And I think for context, it's, it's a lot easier to go back and read 12 with this rest of this passage. Because if not, it does get confusing. What in the world is all this going on? Because there's some strange verses in here. There's some really cool verses um, uh, maybe one of the most popular verses of James is found here in this, in this passage. So let me, let me pray for our time in God's Word. Let me pray just for sound that we can just hear um, and uh, the Lord can work in our lives. Uh, Father, we gather this morning and just something sweet about knowing we can call you Father as we gather. As we gather as your sons and daughters as we gather as brothers and sisters. Now, Lord, we want to be changed. We want to be shaped into your son's image. And we know that can't come from, um, from anything but uh, your grace and kindness towards us, how you're at work in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would just Just surrender everything to you. We've come from different backgrounds this week, Lord. We maybe uh, some come with a hard week at work, or a hard week of parenting, or a hard week of uh, of being single, or just trying to live this authentic life. And Lord, it's hard. It's hard to be steadfast. So, Lord, I pray that you would. Open up your word to us today that we could see the importance of being steadfast, that we would walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, that uh, there'd be no distractions from 
from the audio that, uh, that this time would be for you. Lord, open up our eyes to see you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the grace of God toward the double-minded man. Let's pick up in verse 12 where we ended last week. It says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So here's this picture that God desires his children to be men and women of integrity, that we are to be steadfast, that when we say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. When we say we're not, we're not going to do it, that we're not wishy-washy might be a phrase that we'd use here in Appalachia, that you're just, that you're just solid, steadfast. Um, and you see there's a warning here, so that you may not fall under condemnation. God loves his children so much. God does not want anyone to perish. And here's this um, warning that this this double-minded man, this people who are wishy-washy, that they may fall under condemnation. And I want to argue this morning that God loves you so much that he will do whatever it takes to get you to be steadfast, to get your attention so that you're not wishy-washy, double-minded. He'll do whatever it takes as a loving father. And let me just prove um, what I'm saying by going to another passage. Hebrews 12, credible Incredible chapter. Hebrews 12 says this, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? My kids do not like that verse. Uh, whenever they're in trouble and I say, you know, I've got to discipline you. You know, as a, as a loving father, it's good for me to discipline you. They're going, no, no, it's not good. I'm telling you, it's not good. I'm saying, no, it is, it is good. And we want God to discipline us. That shows us that he cares for us. He loves us. And he'll do whatever it takes to get our attention. And so now let's... Go back to James. So there's a transition here. And I, I think it, they're connected, but a lot of us have probably a little heading there between 12 and 13 that distracts us. 13 says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? So here are these three categories. Someone suffering, someone who's cheerful, someone who's sick. Then James gives us um, the answer for someone, like if they're sick, what should they do? Let's keep going. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So I want you to notice here that if someone's sick, they are to call on the elders of the church. Elders, that means um, in our context, you, you might be more familiar with the phrase pastor, Pastor, elder, those are synonymous terms in the New Testament. Uh, they mean the same thing. So you're calling for the pastors, you're calling for the elders of the church, and the elders are praying over that person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, some of you may have grown up in churches where you've seen this happen. I remember being in a church where um, uh, I had uh, an injury to my arm, and the church prayed over me, and the pastor took some oil and put it on my arm. And they prayed over me. And so this is a, a somewhat common. This is coming from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you would anoint someone with oil, it was this idea that you're setting them apart. as either for a task, a job, some kind of mission. But you're setting or a position uh, like King David or King Saul. They were set apart. Uh, and so that's this idea that they're being set apart. Now, what is going on here? There's this guy who's sick. 
He's calling for the elders, and they're praying over him, anointing him, setting him apart from, from others. Uh, let's keep going. I want you to see just how strange 15 and 16 are, how the, like this wording. Because none of us would write this this way. But James does. So what in the world is he, what, what is he doing? Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at his working. Now, I don't know if you caught that. I, I've, I have done uh, so many small groups through James. And I've never caught this until I, until I was studying it in its context. This is fascinating to me. This is not a natural way you'd write this. Um, I mean, think about this. It says, so there's a guy who's sick. Let's remember context. A guy's sick. He comes to the elders, and he wants prayer. They put oil on him. They're praying for him. And look what it says in verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, if you're using an NIV, and maybe that's why I've missed this before, the NIV doesn't say that it will save the sick. It, will say, it says something like, um, it, it will make him well. I don't know how many of you are using a version that might say that. Maybe more than just the NIV. The word is really, it's the Greek word for save. And so most of your versions probably says save. It's, it says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And then if you drop down into 16... The, there's somebody who's the sinner is confessing sins and this guy is to be healed it seems like this is flipped you notice that like the one who is sick the prayer should heal him not save him and the one who is a sinner that prayer should save him not heal him but you notice it's flipped what's going on I think this is the Lord being extremely gracious to the double-minded man. That this man is sick um, because of his personal sin. So let me, let me phrase it this way. Your personal sin may influence uh, your physical body. Now, all of you medical people know this. So you know, um, you, you treat somebody... Um, let me, let me just, this, this, I want some interaction. If somebody is really just, they just deal with like a lot of high stress, anxiety, worry, what physical symptoms, if they come in, they say they're, get, they're coming into the nurse, nurse is doing just some vitals, what might show up with them? High blood pressure. Uh, and so here's someone who has high stress, anxiety, worry. Those are all, you can't touch any of those, right? Those aren't physical things. Those are, those are immaterial. And yet it impacts the material, your body. Um, impacts your heart. The immaterial, your soul, and the material, your body, are tied together, Okay? And some of your sin may lead to your suffering or sickness. Now, I want to make sure I clarify this because last week I just said that the health um, prosperity gospel is the anti-gospel. But I don't, you know, anytime you go down one road, there, uh, there's this idea that there's a lot of truth mixed in with um, you know, there's a lot of preachers that are preaching false gospel. But a lot of what they say is true. And so they can say 99% truth, 1% false, and it's all a lie. And so I want to make sure I clarify this morning because last week I, I stood up here and said that uh, health, wealth, prosperity gospel is an anti-gospel. And I don't want you leaving here this morning thinking I'm preaching that. But we do need to be on the same page to understand that how you're living, if you're double-minded, God may be getting your attention by bringing some kind of sickness upon you. 
All right? Let me just, now I'm going to go to Scripture. This is not, I want you to, you at least have a problem with Scripture, not a problem with me, okay? And I really don't feel like I'm abusing these passages. I just want you to see this. Um, now let me clarify this. Not all sickness and suffering are due to personal sin, okay? Not all sickness and not all suffering is due to personal sin, but some of your sickness and suffering may be because of your personal sin. So let me just clarify it that way. Now, Paul warns the Corinthian church of this very same thing. Hold your place in James. Go a few books back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So this church, it was, this church was a mess. Um, it, it, this would have been a hard church to pastor. Uh, just, it was corrupt. And um, in chapter 11, you'll see this. Um, Paul is writing to them, and he's talking about the Lord's Supper and, and, and the manner that you should take of the Lord's Supper, um, what you know, some people call communion. And Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 11. To the church, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That's why before we take the Lord's Supper here, we just give you time to examine yourself. We don't want to rush you in to something your heart's not ready for. We want to give you a time of confession to make sure your heart is ready. He goes on, next verse. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then look at this. That is why, all right, so because they're doing it this way, that is why. Here's the reason why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. All right, so how they were living impacts their physical body. They were um, not coming to the table in a right manner, and some of them in that church had become weak and ill, and some have died. All right, that was because of their personal sin, and now they're suffering or have suffered um, because of how they were living. All right, let me give you another one, John 5. John 5, uh, Jesus is interacting with, um, with this man, uh, verse 5 of chapter 5. It says, one man was there. Uh, there is this pool. So there's this pool that a lot of people gathered around, thought it had magical powers, that if you could just touch the water, you might be healed. And so there is this man who um, had been, been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So here's this guy. He's an invalid. He can't, he can't walk. So he couldn't walk over to the water. He'd have to have somebody carry him over to the water. And Jesus just asked him, do you want to be healed? Um, Jesus eventually have discussion. Jesus tells him just to get up. You don't need that water. Just get up and walk. And he picks up his mat and walks away. He goes back to the temple. He tells other people that, and, and their people are just, I mean, imagine 38 years, people see him and they're just flipping out. Like, how in the world, like, what happened? And he tells them about Jesus. He comes back. Jesus runs into him in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I mean, I don't know how I could twist that verse. I mean, just a clear reading is how this man had been living in some way impacted him or could impact him again. Um, and so there's two passages. It happened in Corinth. Jesus addresses this kind of language. But let me just show you that not all sickness, not all suffering is because of personal sin. John 9. So four chapters later... The disciples see uh, this man, uh, and he passed by. He saw a man, so that he hears Jesus. Jesus passed by, saw a man blind from birth. And the disciples may have known about the, the John 5 miracle. 
So this may have been why they were asking this question. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So you see their logic. This man has a problem, so it must be because of his sin. And Jesus quickly corrects them. Next verse. Jesus answered, it was not that this man had sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So not all suffering, not all sickness is due to personal sin, but I think James is using a specific type here that this is the double-minded man that God is trying to shake and get a hold of before it's too late. I mean, you remember, let your yes be yes or your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. If we back up the previous chapter, James reminds us that our life is like a mist. It's a vapor. We're here for a short time. We're gone. God knows that. He's going to do whatever it takes to get our attention before we take our final breath. And so here's this man. He's sick, and he's calling for the elders of the church. Uh, to pray over him, anointing him with oil. And then the, the, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. I think this man is in need of a of, of prayer of repentance. He's living in some way, and, uh, and, he, and, and it's impacting his physical body. And he's praying. And there's this prayer of repentance, and the Lord will save the one who is sick. He will raise him up. If in this language, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Why does the sick man need to be forgiven? It's because there's something in his life that's going on. Uh, and then we go back to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another and that you may be healed. I love this language. So, when this man was sick, he called for the elders of the church. And so there's something about the leadership in the church praying over people. But um, I, I don't want us to miss this. Because uh, I, I think this is a part of the problem in, in the church in America. Is we just skip over verse 16. That we just, I don't know, we just don't like this. We're too private. It's... it's, it's um, you're letting people into your lives and you're not, it's just, you'd rather not. The, the church in America is fine showing up on Sundays, putting a smile. As soon as you get out of the car, you know, it's the classic, like, we're screaming at the kids, like, stop hitting her. And, you know, kids are driving me crazy. And then you get out of the car and the greeters are out there. And, you know, we, we place them out in the parking lot. So, like, you got to be ready. As soon as you get out of the car, you're like, all right, kids, hey, good to see you. And you're, good morning. Yeah, life's good. And you come in, you smile, and you sit in here for an hour and a half. Then, you know, you maybe greet some people on the way out, and you get in your car, and we don't see each other till next week. That is not how the church is supposed to interact with each other. The language here that James uses throughout this book is brothers, brothers. And the Greek would allow brothers and sisters. We're a family. And notice who... James says that you confess to today. Confess to a priest, to your elders. You, you would have your elders pray over you, but who are you confessing to here? To one another. Who's the one another? It's your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the one another's. And you guys have heard me use that language so much when, like, when we're doing um, member recognition. Uh, we... We'll, we'll, say, we'll use that language, like, will you be willing to do the one another's? Part of that one another is that you're willing to confess your sin to one another. And, and so it's, and, and notice, that I love how this is structured and worded, that, that you confess your sins, but I can't, I can't grant you forgiveness. I don't have the power to forgive your soul. And notice that's not what confession here is doing. Confession here, what is, it, what is it accomplishing? Not forgiveness, but what? Healing. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I, I, 
I love, I, and, you know, sometimes people will come up to me and they'll say, man, I really uh, love, I got, you know, something from that message. I just, but the way you preach just makes me uncomfortable. Like, I just feel like you're too transparent. Like, you just share too much of, like, your own personal sin when you're preaching. And I'm going, oh, so you'd rather me put this facade on and, and not have any flaws and smile and allow you to put me up on a pedestal. That's because that's what pastors should be, right? We should be on a pedestal so everybody thinks we're perfect and uh, live a different life, right? Now, I am broken just like you. I had sin in my life, and as many times have I heard somebody say, I'm just uncomfortable the way you are transparent from up front, I've had eight times as many people say, I love how you just are just open. It makes me feel like if he can do it, I can do it. If he's hurting, you know, I know that I'm going to hurt too. And, and I want you to see that it's okay to confess to each other, that we're a family. And if we can't confess to our family, then we've got bigger issues. And so here's this beautiful picture of this man coming. He's got some kind of sickness, and a lot is happening. He's, he's being healed but he's also being forgiven. He's put in right standing. And so I think he's no longer being this double-minded man. Now he's being a repentive son or, or daughter walking in right standing with, with, um, with God. This idea of, of, of confessing to one another. I, man, I just... I would love, and I don't know how this looks. I don't know if you've noticed this, but Andrew does a really good job with, with music of just a flow of music. We don't start off our morning um, with a time of confession. We usually start off with a time of a call to worship. He's calling us to worship this almighty God. And then he transitions us to a time of thanksgiving, so we'll sing a song about how we're thankful. Uh, and then usually the song after the sermon is a more of a song of reflection, a song of, of, of confession, of a commit, you're committing something. And so there's movement in our service, but I've, I've always wondered, what would it look like if we just had a time of confession on Sunday morning? So, I know you, a lot of you would squirm, our tenants would go down probably, and I don't even know if that's what this is talking about, that as you gather on Sunday morning, should there be a corporate time of confession of prayer? Uh, I think I could get carried away in a bad way. Um, uh, but this morning I thought we would try it. So I'm going to pass a, a mic around starting with Holly. And you start first. I'm teasing. But what would it look like if, if we just had a time of confession? And I don't know if that's even what this means, if, if it's gathered together or just as you're with one another. So one of the ways that we are with one another during the week is something we call community groups. And community groups will be starting up soon. So if you have a green card in front of you and um, that connect card, um, you, can, you can sign up for a community group. A community group is a group. It's a small group here. It's um, all ages, genders that we um, want to um, do life together that we want to have people in homes, um, uh, just reading through the Bible. And man, I think those are a great place where you'll see trust built to where you do hear people just confessing. Like, hey, I need your prayer this week. I'm struggling in this area. Could you just pray for me? In fact, could you call or text me this week and just hold me accountable? I think it's a really natural place for this verse to kind of happen. Uh, and so... Um, I at least think that is going on. I, I don't know. I don't know if Sunday morning is the right place, but there's something in me. I would love for that to happen, but I, I don't know what that would look like uh, logistically. Um, but we are called to confess sins to one another. This is not just to the pastor, um, but it's to one another. In fact, I don't care if you ever tell me. You could just go to somebody else. It doesn't. You don't have to come to me and tell me, uh, your, your sin. I believe that the church is competent to counsel one another, that you don't need the professional help. You can, I think, 
the church is sufficient to counsel one another, to confess sins to one another, to help each other through difficult times. You don't need just the pastor to walk with you. And I love this church. I don't feel that pressure from you guys. There are some churches where the pastor is the only one who can do everything. And I just think that's robbing the church of being the priesthood of believers. That's a beautiful doctrine that I want to make sure we keep. It's a priesthood of believers that, that if you're in Christ, that you have the same Holy Spirit that I have, that you can administer a lot of what I do, the daily ministry. You, you can have that when you walk with your coworkers, your friends, um, your family, um, that the pastor is not the only one who can do counseling. He's not the only one who can um, visit uh, people in the hospital or pray over people or do baptisms. Like there are some churches, only the pastor can baptize. I, I, man, I love that you guys get to be a part of that, that you get to baptize people that you're going to be walking with. And so I, I love this picture here of the one another's. So he ends, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as is working. I, I love this. So who's the righteous person? He, he brings up an a Old Testament figure. And um, sometimes we can look at this passage and we think, if someone's not healed, then it's my fault. I didn't, have the, I didn't have a big enough prayer. I didn't have enough faith, is usually what people say. My faith wasn't big enough to save someone. I want to remind you that, that that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about how big your faith is. It's the object of your faith. That you're praying, that your faith is in Christ, not in your faith. All right? That thing, that's where we get mistaken oftentimes is we think that we put our faith in our faith. Our faith isn't in our faith. Our faith is in the power of Christ. And we twist that and we try to make it about us. Well, I got to pray harder. I got to pray more. I got to live a better way. And, and now you've made your prayer life about you and you've taken away the power of God. And so James is saying, no, it's the object of your faith that you need to trust that, that Christ can do this. Not that he's obligated, but that he can and so he says, the prayer of the righteous person has great powers working. And he brings up Elijah. Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. Um, there are more miracles done with Elijah uh, in his life than, than you'll see just about anywhere else. Um, you'll see a lot with Moses. Then you just see like very few miracles. Then you'll see Elijah and Elisha. Then you don't see very many miracles. Then you see Jesus, a lot of miracles. A lot of people think miracles just happen all the time. They didn't happen all the time. That's why they're called miracles. And so here's Elijah. Uh, and Elijah did all these miracles. But you notice that it doesn't bring up, it doesn't highlight him for the miracles. It highlights him for his prayer. And so it says here uh, in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Uh, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. I want you to notice language here. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Here's a guy who prayed that it would not rain, and for three and a half years, it didn't rain. Now, some of you, you're going to go ahead and put up the, like, come on. That really happened? This Bible, come on now. It's 2019. These are just stories. And I'm, I'm telling you, I believe it literally happened. Literally did not rain for three and a half years. Now, come on, man. There's no way that could happen. Uh, which is harder, to pull this off or to create everything from nothing? If God can create everything from nothing... How hard would it be not, for, not to rain for three and a half years? I, I, I think this happened. And Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That brings me so much comfort. That here's this man that, that God used was a nature, with a nature like ours, like yours. 
I think this is here to show us and, and, and to encourage us to pray big prayers. But I want you to, I want to make sure we're on the same page. This is not, okay, so I'm going to accept that challenge. So now I'm going to start praying for a bigger house. I'm going to start praying for a bigger car, a nicer car, a, a, a better job. That, that's not the point here. Uh, the point is he's praying things that God um, desires. He, so like when the Bible says, ask whatever in my name and it will be given to you. When we are praying the things God wants us to pray, like whatever we need to accomplish his mission, I truly believe he will give that to you. And so that's where you have to factor in what are you actually praying. Do you really need that to accomplish this mission or are you just being selfish and building your own kingdom? But if you need it to build his kingdom, I truly believe he'll give it to you. Here in the context, this is amazing. The Israelites, they were double-minded. Yes, Lord, we'll do whatever you say. And yet they were living completely. They were falling after other gods, marrying people from other religions. And, and, and God was bringing punishment upon them. This not reigning for three years was judgment on how they were living their life. We see this in 1 Kings 18. So 1 Kings 18, this is one of the most famous parts of Elijah's life. Um, he's up on the mountain, and he's, he's basically a challenge. This is a, uh, just a throwdown between Elijah, Elijah and his God and um, Ahab and his God, Baal. And so um, this, is, this is pretty cool. In 1 Kings 18, verse 21, it says, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, the context of this is Elijah's on a mountain and all these other uh, Israelites are on the mountain and basically Elijah challenges them, saying, if, if Baal was the real God, have him call down fire from heaven. And they do all these sacrifices and all these things, and it, nothing ever happens. And Elijah, while they're doing all these rituals, Elijah's over and he takes water and he's pouring it all over his altar. And he just kind of look at him like, just wait, it's going to be cool. And he's just soaking all this wood. And, uh, and they, they finally give up. He says, okay, my God's turn. And uh, God calls down fire uh, from heaven and consumes that altar. And they all um, flip out and start running. And that's when he says, who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow God or not? Stop being double-minded. Stop following him on Sunday morning. But then the rest of the week doing whatever you want to do. Live it. Be authentic with your life. And, and I've never seen this until this week. I've always looked at this where it says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And that, that's always encouraged me, like in my prayer, like to think like, wow, like Elijah was just a man. He was, he was, he was human. He was broken. But I never noticed this until studying this passage with the idea of being double-minded. Elijah was also a double-minded man. So in chapter 18, that happens. And you could imagine how just excited you'd be. And man, most of you, you've had that mountaintop experience, not where the fires come down, but where you've, maybe you went to a conference, maybe you went to a summer camp, maybe you heard a sermon or some kind of retreat, and then you just, Lord, it cannot get any better than this. How long did it take before you became wishy-washy? Before you began to become double-minded? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You know what happened the very next day, or at least a few days from, from Matthew or from uh, 1 Kings 18? In 1 Kings 19, Elijah has another prayer. You know what that prayer was? 
19.4, he says, Lord, take my life. Take my life, Lord. I can't do this. It's too hard. Isn't that crazy? How you can be so, like, on fire for the Lord and just run through a wall, like, man, Lord, I'll go anywhere, do anything for you. And then some people start talking bad about you, want to bring harm on you, and that's what was going on with Elijah's life. And the very next breath, he says, Lord, take my life. Have you ever prayed a dumb prayer? Man, I sure have. I've prayed many dumb prayers. I'll, I'll tell you one. Olivia and I, we were first married. So it's been like 2005, 2006. We had no kids. And we went to Yellowstone. We flew out. And we were going either from Vegas to Salt Lake City or Salt Lake City to Vegas on, man, I saw the guy, he got out and he just like turned the propeller. And I got nervous. I'm like, wait, I'm teasing. He didn't do that. But that's what I felt like. It was just a small plane and there was this storm and I'm on this plane and I, and I, and I have flown many times. This is like my first time flying. But I'm in one of those and some of you may have been on those where you're just, you're, you're all over the place. You're like, this is not how it's supposed to be. And, and, and I'm like, this is it. You know, I'm going down. It's been real. But I'm out. And I remember praying. This is a dumb prayer. I said, Lord, if you get me through this, if you get us to, you know, to the ground safely, I will tell somebody about you every day. I'll share the gospel every day of my life till I die. And, uh, man, that was a dumb prayer. It was a great, it was, the idea was great, but I should have never, I didn't let my yes be yes and my no be no. And so Elijah just, he prayed, Lord, take my life. I can't do this. And I've never seen him as being a double-minded man, that he needed to be reminded, no, Elijah, stay steadfast. It's worth it. Trust me. I'm, I'm at work. And Elijah thought, man, there's nobody else out there, I'm the only one left who's proclaiming God. And God says, no, you're not. There's hundreds of others who love me and that are telling people about me. You're not the only one. And so here's this encouraging, uh, just this passage about Elijah's, um, how he's just being faithful to God, praying, and, and, and God answers this prayer um, and I just want you to see what's possible. There are people in your life that you think, man, there's no way. Like, they just left the faith. There's no way they'll ever come back. I think that's part of why Elijah's prayer is here. So we read that and we go, that's impossible. But I really believe the impossible became possible here. And I think sometimes we say that about people, too. There might be people coming to your mind right now that have wandered away from the faith. And you think, man, there's no way they're going to come back. I, man, I just want to encourage you. Like, if God can do this, surely he can bring them back. And that's the transition I, th I think James leaves us with. He, he, he ends the book. I mean, it seems kind of strange, but I love it. I love how it ends. It's, it's, it's this, this is your family. Go after them. And so look at 19 and 20. He says, my brothers, and again, he's, he's showing your identity. It's family. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's kind of a strange way, just a rough way to end this letter. But I think it's this idea that the Lord's coming back, our life's like this, and there's some who have wandered away. And, and we have an opportunity to bring them back, that we go chase after them, that, uh, that if they are family and if we are committed to them, then we're willing to do this. Uh, but this is hard, right? This means it's got to be a hard conversation, you got to text or make a phone call or a visit. That's hard. And I've had those. And man, I've never looked forward to any of those phone calls. But if I really love that person, 
I, I think we're called to do it. And I think, I think the church is God's means to bring people back. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, I think, gives us some encouragement um, and some instruction on how, like some wisdom on how we, we are to do this. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we don't go to them just blasting them, like, hey, I know what you're doing, um, but you go to them in a spirit of gentleness. Hey, like, I love you. And the way you're living is it's not good. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy you and your life and others that are around you who love you. You go to them with gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so, so, feel, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're to chase after people, to go after them. There might be some faces in your mind right now of some phone calls or texts you need to make this week that you're willing to go after those who have wandered away, that they're double-minded, that they, I'm all in, Lord, and you were with them, and you were excited, they were in your community group, and now they're gone. Do you love them enough to go after them? You might be the means that God has put in their life to keep them from condemnation. And this is exactly what God has done for us. Let me close with this, Matthew 18. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So is it not the will of my Father who is in heaven that uh, one of these little ones should perish? What God wants us to do for others, those who have wandered away, is exactly what he's done for us. We are all here right now because someone loved us enough to tell us about the gospel. Someone came chasing after us that we didn't love God, we were rebels. And somebody had a really hard conversation. Maybe there was a fear of, if I tell Adam about the gospel, he may reject it and reject me. And, and I just couldn't handle that. I hear that language. Like, well, I might offend them or they, 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 might, they might not like me. They might think poorly of me. And that moment doesn't matter. Like, their, their life is leading to condemnation. And we're worried about our relationship here on this earth, which is a vapor. We are called to love each other, to confess our sin to one another, to bear one another's burdens. So application. Just want you to search your heart this morning. In what ways might you be the double-minded man. So it's kind of easy to hear a message like this and start thinking about other people. But what about you? What truths of God are you starting to wander away from that you are maybe, you used to care a lot about that, but now you don't as much? It's a slow fade, the path of double-mindedness. It doesn't happen overnight. It begins by just putting your Bible away. I'm not going to finish that devotion, or I'm not going to finish that book I've been reading, or I'm going to not have my morning time of prayer with the Lord. It's little things. I'm going to stop praying with my family. But then after a while, a month, months go by, a year goes by, and you've wandered away. What areas in your life have you wandered away from? You might actually be the face on somebody, in somebody else's mind. So let's not just be quick to think about other people without first examining our own life. And I think this passage also encourages us to just examine our own prayer life. What could you do this week 
to renew your prayer life. Uh, most of us would confess this is a weak area for us. We're just not naturally good prayers. What I love about this passage is, is that you don't have to be an elder or an evangelist uh, to be a good prayer. Um, prayer is just focusing on the, the object of your faith, Christ, and just praying and knowing that He can do whatever His holy will is. And so how can you just renew your prayer life this week? Getting up 10 minutes earlier, maybe missing lunch, and just going out, sitting in your car during lunch, maybe starting a journal where you just journal your prayers. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. just want to um, close with this idea of just Sometimes we, we are drawn towards the miraculous. And uh, there's, there's I, I saw one of these a few weeks ago. A, a local church here in Huntington had a, uh, a healing service. And uh, studying this passage, I started thinking, man, if you want to have a healing service, you don't bring in a healer. That's what they did. They brought in a, a healer from out of town, and they had a healing service. And I thought, man, you don't, need to bring in a healer from out of town to have a healing service. James says the best way to have a healing service is to have a confession service. That you have a time of confession. As we're confessing our sins, then you will experience healing. So I just want to leave you this morning with just some time. Just confess your sin. Um, if that's afterwards to one another, I love it. That's kind of what that time is out in the lobby afterwards. It's a time where you're just talking. Maybe you're confessing sin to one another. You're encouraging one another. Um, just make sure you examine your, your life before God. Make sure you're not a double-minded man or a double-minded woman, unstable in all your ways. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your goodness and kindness and just for your word, how it, it's so sharp. It just cuts right to our soul. At the same time, it it's, brings so much healing to us. It's, it's, it's like a surgeon just removing all the wickedness from us, then sewing us up. And uh, Lord, we need both of those. So Lord, I pray that you would remove and that you would bring healing. Lord, help us to, to trust you that no matter what we confess, that, that you can uh, uh, bring healing. And so we just... Surrender to you. And Lord, I just pray that this is a time of confession, that you hear from your sons and daughters, that they would confess to you and um, confess to one another. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, if you would like um, to come talk to me about how to become a Christian or, or just even um, maybe you just need to confess just to one another, I can be your one another. I'll just be standing in this back. would love just to pray with you. Um, any, anyway. Um, so um, if you need to just sit right now and just pray sit if you're ready to stand and celebrate what the Lord's doing if you're able to stand you can stand at this time